Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. These words of our Lord Jesus Christ from the Gospel of John, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. on the Feast of the Ascension, and indeed during the whole of Ascension Tide, that we remember that Jesus Christ has gone before us to the right hand of the Father. What is it that He does there? He prays for us. But what does He pray? Well, we're given insight into the very prayer of Jesus in the Gospel of John chapter 17, wherein Jesus prays for His disciples, Holy Father, keep them in Your name which You have given Me, that they may be one even as we are one. And then He continues on, but He prays for them for truth that sanctifies that the Father would sanctify them in the truth. And beloved in the Lord, let me begin by saying that this is the truth of Jesus Himself. It is the truth of the faith. It is the truth of a person. Jesus Christ, who is the Word of the Father, the way, the truth, and the life. As John puts it, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony of in himself. And whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Jesus consecrates himself to the Father. He sets himself apart as holy for the glory of the Father. And why? So that they also, meaning the disciples, may be sanctified in the truth. We must not become a people who forget that the Word of God cleanses. It's not a very popular idea today. It's almost like the Word of God makes you filthy and dirty and nasty. No, the Word of God cleanses. Cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And it was by the washing of not only water, but the very pronunciation of the triune name of God that you and I were washed. By which we were set apart to be a holy people. If this was merely a washing with water without the Word, it would have been simply a bath and not a very effective one at that. This is a basic idea lost on Christians today. What it means to be a person sanctified in the truth. I'm reminded this morning that ancient Christians were baptized into literally the name of the Trinity as they professed the faith of the rule of faith what we would say would be the Apostles' Creed. Some of them even professing it between the threefold baptisms. Jews in the first century understood how it was that they were consecrated and that they consecrated themselves through ritual washings to the whole law of God. It wasn't their own intentions that made them holy. It was the law as the Word of the living God that made them holy. Consider how it was that the people of Israel heard the law of God and were consecrated in the blood of bulls. Moses saying, behold the blood of the covenant and see how it was that they said, said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All the truth of God, we will do it. 
Jesus, the great high priest, prays words of sanctification for these his disciples, for these who would be witnesses of the new covenant, praying that they would be set apart by the truth. That the mark of the Christian would not be blood or a mark on the body, but consecration and sanctification in the truth of the Word of God, the truth of the incarnate Word. I mean, you'll note this. You don't become a Christian by getting a tattoo, thanks be to God. You don't become a Christian by cutting your finger off, thanks be to God. You don't become a Christian by being bathed in blood. And you don't become a Christian by signing on the bottom line either. Let me just say a bit about this. I've been thinking lately about what the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has written about the buffered self. It is this idea that human beings have undergone a substantial change in the last few centuries in the way we see ourselves. We have gone from understanding ourselves to be living in a world of unseen realities, an enchanted world where spirits and cosmic forces break into this world, the world of God. We've gone from that to what he calls an imminent frame. What is real is that which is right before me. The buffered self is defined by no one other than me. I determine who I am, what I am, and what is true for me, and how dare you attack it. Note that today, one of the worst things you can do is question someone's idea of their own reality. That's the offense above all others. And such a person is, to say the least, terribly difficult to evangelize. But it's worse than that. You and I have been deeply marked by this disenchantment, deeply marked by this idea that you and I are those who determine what is real and what is not, what is true and what is false. But at the heart of Christian believing and discipleship is the conviction that true fulfillment cannot happen apart from God. And not just the unknown God of philosophy, the God to whom the altar in the Areopagus was ascribed, but the God who took on human flesh, who died in that flesh, who rose in that flesh, who ascended again in the flesh. The God to whom the apostles testify. The God to whom the martyrs proclaim. So for the Christian to be consecrated in the truth is not simply to be set apart in true sayings or true ideas as important as that is, but to be made holy by being joined to God, shot through with the divine presence to such an extent that the Christian is called, and rightly so, a temple of the Holy Spirit, bearing the very fruit of the indwelling Spirit. Now let me say, truth matters. It matters deeply. But Christians bear witness to the truth out of whom they have become in Christ and not out of what they have determined in their minds. Hear what the Apostle John says today. There are three that testify. Note he doesn't say there are three that testify. Uh, one is an apostle. The other is uh, me or you or the guy down the street. No, he doesn't say that. He says there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. 
Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning the Son. Consider these three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. John is thinking here of the wound in the side of the crucified Jesus. A wound which he himself witnessed. And this wound cut in the side of the dead corpse of the Lord brought forth what? Blood and water. We should not be content with a merely literal interpretation of this event. And believe me, I'm going to say it. I believe this happened. I'm not going to get that wrong with you. I believe this happened because Scripture says that that's enough for me. But I want to tell you something more, which is that there's more to be said about this than just it happened. We should be drawn, like John, to consider its deeper meaning. You'll remember that in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to Nicodemus that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You can think of Nicodemus putting ointment in that wound in the Lord's side. Further, the Lord calls attention in John chapter 6 to the necessity of doing what? Eating his body, drinking his blood, which is drink indeed. St. Augustine here makes a wonderful connection that just as Eve was drawn out of Adam's side when he was in a deep sleep, the church is drawn forth from Jesus' side while he is in the sleep of death. The church is constituted, born from continually, the water of baptism, by which we are joined to Jesus, fed continually and remade continually by the true food, the true drink of the Eucharist. It is continually given power by the Holy Spirit dwelling in her. St. Augustine says something like, sacraments are those gifts that pour forth from the wound of Christ. And I would say to you that sacraments are what make the church truly herself. You see, in these acts, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the day of Pentecost, these days that we're in the midst of today, this truth comes together. The Christian is marked by these, made the child of God, a member of the church, and an inheritor of the kingdom. And it is on this basis, the basis of Christian identity, that we're sanctified in the truth not because we've worked it out in our minds, our nice little, you know, individualized, capable understandings. They are a reminder that the Christian is, by that very word, Christian, one of Christ's, the very opposite of one buffered against all manner of truth that is foreign to me. The Christian has found truth and indeed life and indeed true life in God. And this is why John says that whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. This means that the testimony which the Christian offers is not circumstantial or the testimony of hearsay. Well, you know, I heard Jesus was crucified. I heard he died. I heard he rose again from the dead. No, it's in us. By being joined to the Lord Jesus in his death, by being raised with Him, by ascending, yes, in a mystical way, 
to be seated with Christ, I am a witness in myself of the eternal life that is in me. And you are a witness of the eternal life that is in you. This is what John writes. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is where? In His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Brothers and sisters, you have been and continue to be consecrated in the truth of Jesus, dipped into His death, raised to new life with Him. As Paul says, as many of you who have been baptized have been baptized also into His death. And if you've been raised with Him, and if you've been died with Him in a death like His, you will certainly be raised with Him in a resurrection like His. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have the Son. The cause of your belief is not a mere ascertaining of the facts by reason, but it comes out of who you are. A member of Christ. A member of His body. And therefore, one with confidence. In other words, as the one who lives righteously by faith in the Son of God, saying with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but He who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith. We might say, with confidence in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Let me just put this one more way. For the Christian, evidence of the truth of the Gospel is right inside me. The evidence of the Gospel is the indwelling life of the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in me, drawing me to greater and greater holiness, drawing me into the divine mystery. I remember being in seminary and uh, there was a sort of impromptu conversation with our systematics professor. And he, and he said, let's, let's, think about the, let's think about the proofs for the resurrection for a moment. And we were all talking and coming up with all these kind of wonderful like apologetic truths and trying to you know, say, well, here's a proof and here's another one. And he's like, you're forgetting the most crucial one. We're like, we've told you, we've given you all of them that we can possibly think of what's left. And he said, you're forgetting it. That the most compelling evidence, the most compelling proof of the resurrection is you. The new life that you have. And he just asked us, have you ever known anyone whose life has been so completely transformed by the gospel that you can't help but believe? And he's right. The evidence of the gospel is that I have died to the old life of sin. And I must ask myself, if I have not died to the old life of sin, or not completely, or not as much as I think I could, what is the evidence of being granted by the grace of God, by the grace of the Gospel, new life in me? I believe I am a witness in myself. I'm a witness of the outpouring of the gifts of grace 
The gifts of the grace of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the sacraments upon not just me, but upon the whole church. Beloved, I desperately want you to see this today. That you came here today not just to sing some songs or think upon the truth of what I'm saying or the untruth of what I'm saying or to wrestle with it in your mind or worse, to be entertained or comforted in your complacency, but to participate in Christ. I always am thankful for that. Father, are you thankful for that? That, you know, we, we come in here and, you know, no matter how bad my sermon is, you still participate in Christ. That no matter how good the music is, you still participate in Christ. Whether it's raining or sunny or dark and stormy or plenty of light, you participate in Christ. To eat His body, to drink His blood, to have fellowship by the Spirit with other Christians and to come together in this family gathering whereby we all have life. I want you to see that there is something deeply distinctive about this which cannot be replaced by the sorts of things we've had to do over the last year. Live streams and podcasts and videos. This cannot be replaced by prayer at home. It cannot be replaced. I want you to see the joy of what is happening here today in ever-deepening ways that the church has come together. Come together to proclaim the faith. Come together to give witness to the truth. To come together as a body which has been drawn out of the very side of Jesus. In this great thanksgiving which we recite for the gift of salvation, for the gift of being joined to Christ, the church offers back to God the very best we have. And the very best we have is not beautiful music. It's not stained glass windows. It's not our lovely green carpet. It's not wood floors. It's not even the check that you brought with you to put in the offering plate, which I know you did. The very best we have is fellowship with the risen Jesus. And it is through that fellowship that the church becomes ever more what she truly is. She testifies to the magnificent grace of God and she becomes ever more enraptured by that gift. And she bears her very nature as a body sanctified in the truth to a world held captive by sin. This is our witness to Christ in me, the hope of glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.